0: There is a move today to legalize same-sex marriage, and it is not slowing down. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What are the arguments for same-sex marriage and against this legislation? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. Recently, Dr. Zucharin hosted a conference in Hawaii to discuss some of the most compelling topics today and offered an evaluation from a Christian standpoint. Today, Dr. Zucharin welcomes an expert on contemporary culture including same-sex marriage kirby anderson of probe ministries in dallas fort worth kirby presents an analysis of same-sex marriage and the current state of the controversy and as we begin today we want to invite you to our website evidenceandanswers.org you'll find information on everything from atheism to zen buddhism featuring past shows interviews with experts books articles and a whole lot more We think you'll love the topics, so check us out today. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zuckerin presents Kirby Anderson with Part 2 of Same-Sex Marriage.
1: What about what our kids would learn? We now, again, don't have to guess about the impact. The moment same-sex marriage was legalized in Massachusetts, the requirement came down from the State Board of Education that the textbooks needed to provide alternative lifestyles role models within the textbooks, and textbooks would have to provide and include homosexual marriage role models. Actually, even after the case in 2003 in the state of Texas, after the anti-sodomy law was struck down, there was a real push by the Texas Board of Education at least some of the more liberal members, to change even the kinds of pictures that were in the textbooks because, after all, we don't want to, and here's the key word, discriminate against other kinds of lifestyles. So again, the impact could be significant. How do you respond to some of the arguments that you're going to hear, especially on this issue of same-sex marriage? Let me look at five. The first one, shouldn't we be tolerant of other lifestyles? First of all, I will not spend a lot of time because I think Pat did an outstanding job, didn't he? Of just helping us understand that. As he pointed out, and you just heard him say, tolerance has been redefined. Tolerance used to be a very positive word. You know, when I read uh, some of the writings of the founders in the 18th century and the Federalist Papers and uh, some of the correspondents, they talked about tolerance, but what they meant is what Pat explained. I may disagree with you, but I will tolerate you in the sense that I will allow you to express a point of view, but I don't necessarily affirm what I think is a wrong idea. So today, though, tolerance has come to mean that I have to affirm everything that you believe in every part of your lifestyle. And as I think Pat pointed out, that's not biblical. So one of the words I like to use is civility, because we should show civility. What does that mean? I put up the golden rule there. We should treat other people as we would like to be treated. So we should have a civil dialogue. We can disagree without being disagreeable. But I think we should take heart of recognizing that some people are going to call you intolerant. And I think a good example of that is in Acts 21, even Paul was accused of being intolerant. And as Pat points out, Matthew 7, 1 is becoming the most quoted verse today. Judge not that you might be judged. But the point is, we don't have to tolerate lifestyles. And so I'm going to move on to the next one because Pat did, I think, a very good job of helping us answer that question. Number two, then... Don't homosexuals deserve equal rights? In other words, isn't this a justice issue? Well, first of all, let's come back and recognize that we have the right to marry someone of the opposite sex who is of a certain age and background. So when people say, I don't have a right, yes you do, you have a right to marry someone of the opposite sex who is of a certain age and background. Well, isn't that discriminatory? Well, we have made reasonable decisions about what is or is not appropriate. For example, You don't have the right to marry a sibling. You may want to marry a brother or sister, although I haven't met too many that do. You don't have the right to marry a young child. I mean, we already set limits. Now, is that because we're being mean-spirited or bigoted or irrational? No, there are very good reasons for that, and we have placed certain limits on marriage. One of the things I've said during this debate about same-sex marriage is that you have to understand that there are boundaries. And if I can quote G.K. Chesterton for just a minute, G.K. Chesterton said, before you take down a fence, you might wanna ask why it was put up there in the first place. Before you take down a barrier, you might wanna ask why it was there. And I think a lot of people that wanna just wave their hands and begin to redefine marriage have never really thought about the consequences. Let's talk about those for a minute. When you redefine marriage, you open the door to more than just same-sex marriage. Don't believe so? Just go back and look at the court records right now in San Francisco. There has been a court case challenging Proposition 8. This was the decision that they made in the state of California to define marriage between one man and one woman. You look at the prosecution, you look at those challenging it, and you can see very, very quickly that what they're doing is not just opening the door to same-sex marriage. They're opening the door to defining marriage any way individuals might actually demand. Interestingly enough, as I've pointed out before, if you get a copy of my book, *A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality, on the very back page before the end notes, I have the list of the votes on every single state. And what you find is that when citizens have been given an opportunity to vote on the definition of marriage, anywhere from 60% to 80% agree it should be between one man and one woman. Doesn't matter if it's a red state or a blue state. Doesn't matter if it's a secular state like Vermont or Oregon, when those people have been given a vote, and Oregon was given a vote and Vermont was not. Or very, very, you know, conservative states like Mississippi or other places. The American people still say, you know, marriage between one man and one woman. The issue is gay activists argue that when they cannot marry, they lose out on certain benefits. The compelling argument is, I deserve some benefits from my company, I deserve some benefits from my government, or I deserve hospital visitation rights. What I've said on my radio show before is that may be justification for reconsidering the benefits, but that's not a justification for redefining marriage. I've said before that if, you know, really, if you've got some case where some mean-spirited person in a hospital would not allow you to visit somebody, whether you're a domestic partner or a civil union, whatever bring it to me, I'll give it national visibility, and we'll change that just by the sheer force of public opinion on my talk show. But the point is, that may be a reason to reconsider some of those benefits, but it's not a reason to redefine marriage. And so even though that is oftentimes the most powerful emotional argument it's ever used, it really isn't a very good argument at all. Let's take a couple more. Interracial marriage. The argument is oftentimes that, well, in a sense... We had a problem with interracial marriage. I alluded to that just a minute ago. And so the problem with race is now the problem with sexual orientation. And I've said before that oftentimes what I've noticed is gay activists want to hitch their caboose to the civil rights train. The civil rights movement of the 1960s for African-Americans is now the civil rights movement in the 21st century for gay activists. Think about this for just a minute. The removal of some of those state laws, by the way, they were very few, but okay, there were some that did not allow for interracial marriage. The removal of those state laws did not call for a redefinition of marriage, but actually an affirmation of marriage. But more importantly, homosexuality is not what we would call an immutable characteristic. I've never met a former African-American, okay? (laughs) I've never met a former Asian. (laughs) Uh, You know, you think about this for a minute. Uh, Gender uh, biologically stays the same. Now we do have some gender replacement, but you have to understand that there are very good reasons why we have laws dealing with those immutable characteristics. When a person chooses to identify themselves by their sexuality, we're not talking about something that is immutable, and in a minute you're going to see that I'll get to that when we talk about those key slogans. Let me take on two more first. What about this? How does my homosexual marriage affect your marriage? Ever heard that before? You've been in the debate, you've heard it a lot. How does homosexual marriage affect traditional marriage? And oftentimes it's put personally. How does my marriage to somebody of the same sex affect your marriage? Well, maybe not one-on-one, but collectively, yes, it does. Because first, it sends a signal of legitimacy through the culture. The next generation grows up thinking, well then, you know, you can be either married homosexually or heterosexually. And so as a result, They begin to redefine marriage, and what happens is marriage declines. Again, we don't have to guess about this. Stanley Kurtz, Hoover Institute, probably done the best research, talks about, especially in many of the Scandinavian countries, which even before they had same-sex marriage as legal, they had sort of a de facto same-sex marriage, so we have a more longitudinal study in that regard, and we find out that once you redefine marriage, marriage becomes less valuable. Think of it this way. Imagine that somebody on this island began to produce counterfeit dollar bills, and all of a sudden, all over Oahu, you're not sure if you have a real dollar or a counterfeit dollar. Would that affect your trust in dollar bills? Of course it would. If somebody has counterfeited marriage, what does it do to real marriage? It makes it less valuable. And so, as a result, it begins to affect traditional marriage across the culture. Second of all, this would completely redefine marriage and introduce all of those other kinds of marriage relationships. Again, we don't have to guess that. Look at the court records in San Francisco right now, and you can see that this is being used. As a matter of fact, one individual who had multiple wives, this kind of Mormon, um, I'm saying Mormon in the broadest sense, he's not in the official Mormon church, but he's in a, a splinter group, has used the argument of same-sex marriage as justification for polygamy. And so now you're seeing that once you begin to say, well, you can have any kind of marriage you want. It can be a man or a woman, it could be two men, it can be two women, it could be one man and three women, it could be a polygamous relationship, a polyamorous relationship, which would be the so-called open marriage, and as a result, you don't really have marriage at all. Third, it would destroy traditional marriage as we know it. Don't think so? This is a direct quote from the National Coalition of Gay Organizations. They demanded, quote, the repeal of all legislative provisions that restrict the sex or numbers, look at this, of persons entering into a marriage unit, and the extension of legal benefits to all persons who cohabit regardless of sex or numbers, unquote. That is a direct quote from the Coalition of Gay Organizations. What do they ultimately want to do? They want to completely redefine marriage. It sounds like all I want to do is provide civil rights for a few groups of individuals, but the issue is, is once you open that door, once you redefine marriage, you don't have a definition for marriage. And on the show, when I have gay activists call into the program, and they do, I'm in 44 states, 300 stations, you know, they call all the time. Lots of times they'll even see on Facebook when we're doing it, and they'll, you know, flood the telephone lines, part of the business. I understand that. They will always try to say, no, all we want is equal rights for same-sex couples. But if you look at those people who are responsible for trying to bring about this change, ultimately what they would like to do is completely redefine marriage. And my answer to them is marriage is what marriage is. Once you redefine marriage, nobody yet has come up with a definition that doesn't prevent total marital and moral anarchy. The best example I heard is a while back in the debate, Marnie Frank was saying, when somebody was saying, well, this would lead to polygamy, he said, no, we would just stop at two. Well, what's arbitrary about two? Why would you only have two people in a marriage? Why couldn't you have three? Or four? Or five? Or whatever you want to have. Or any combination thereof. Do you see the point? Ultimately, you redefine marriage. Fourth, there's a reason to believe that homosexual marriages will be different from heterosexual marriages. We don't have to guess about this either. Andrew Sullivan, who's a gay columnist, went on to say that he thought that gay couples will change the way heterosexual couples view marriage. In my book, I quote from uh, the New Yorker magazine and from Andrew Sullivan and all sorts of people, because if you looked at homosexual marriages, so-called gay marriages, and we've had quite a few now in a number of states, and we've had sort of de facto ones for some time, Monogamy is not a big issue. I understand that. When I was growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, my uncle was a prominent homosexual. He had a homosexual partner. I'm pretty sure, with virtual certainty, that he was always true to his partner. First when they lived in San Francisco, and especially then when they moved to Arizona and developed a travel agency so they could travel the world and see people. Monogamy is supposedly a foundational principle of heterosexual marriage, not necessarily in homosexual marriage. The idea of an open marriage is certainly finding its way. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and others have had all sorts of articles saying that this kind of marriage is very different than the kind of marriage that we've talked about. And finally, these same-sex marriages, what kind of impact does it have on the family? Well, ultimately, any study that you've ever looked at, and there have been ones that have been collected by people who could not possibly sign the doctrinal statement of Calvary Church, could not possibly feel comfortable walking in this door, still have to begrudgingly admit that the best place to raise children is in an intact marriage with a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. Who would against? <laughs> and yet, that's exactly what they find. There's an obvious connection between marriage and family. Now, what I hear from some of the gay activists is, well, yeah, but some couples don't have children. Okay, I understand that, but there's a distinction between purpose and use. The purpose, ultimately, of marriage is, in most cases, to have children. Now, due to lifestyle choice or infertility, some don't. I understand that. But the purpose still is intact, even if the use is not. A good example is, when I write a book, the purpose is for people to read it. Now, I'm not naive enough to know that some of those books sit on shelves and are never read. Some end up in used bookstores. Some are given away as uh, re-gifting presents, whatever. So what would garage sales? But the purpose was to write a book that people would read, even if the use is different. The connection is not insignificant just because some people don't have children. Behind all of these arguments are two key slogans that maybe you've heard before. I was born gay, once gay, always gay. Everybody heard that before? In the shortness of time, I'm going to only look at a few examples. You can read more on our website, create a copy of the book. What about that? The first one is important, isn't it? Because, after all, that makes it look like an immutable characteristic. The second one is important as well, because if I can't change, then, you know, why are you not allowing me some kind of right? So you can see how both of them in, they're sort of like background information, actually affect this issue of same-sex marriage. In the interest of time, I'm only gonna give you a couple of examples. Let's look at the first one, I was born gay. Let me look at the two best examples cited by gay activists to argue that people are born homosexual. By the way, before we even get to that, can I just point out that human sexuality is so diverse and so complicated that I don't think you have a one-size-fits-all answer anyway. But let's look at the two examples that surface most frequently and see if they make any sense. The first one you've probably heard about before because it was covered by 2020 and others. It was work done by Simon Levay. It appeared in Science Magazine in 1991. And what he found as he was looking at some particular clusters of cells in the hypothalamus of cadavers, the hypothalamus is oftentimes associated with human sexuality, is that he found that the clusters of these cells were larger in men and smaller in women. Ah. So there's a gender difference in these cells. So he now began to say, what if there's not only a difference between male and female? I know, first of all, that this is really controversial. We're told today that men and women are basically the same. Who came up with this idea? You know, men's brains and women's brains are different. But nevertheless, we'll leave that, to that another day. But he began to say, OK. Maybe since there's a gender difference, could there be a difference in sexual orientation? So LeVay went back and tested the cadavers of others, and he found this. The clusters tended to be smaller in homosexuals and larger in heterosexuals. So this, to him, gave evidence of the fact that there might be a biological basis to homosexuality, that people are born gay. First of all, This one has been pretty much set aside by even people in the scientific community for a couple of reasons. First of all, small sample size. Only did a few cadavers. And what was striking is, in a few cases, he did not know the sexual orientation of the cadavers. So he assumed, you can believe this, that if they had smaller clusters, they must have been homosexual. Is there a problem with that at all? (laughs) Garrett, I think if you had a, a science fair here for your kids, and you ask them to do a science project, and they assume the conclusion in their results, do you know that that would be kind of bad science? Is everybody with me on this one? Okay, so that's the first thing. Second of all, when you looked at the variation, the variation between the clusters was greater than the, the actual correlation. And for those of you that were in statistics, if the variation is greater than the correlation, it means nothing at all. It's one of the few things I learned before I flunked table of contents. So, you know, those kinds of things, mean that it was meaningless. But let's for just a moment just assume that there was a statistically significant variation. Does that really tell us that people were born that way? Because you notice what I put up there? What did I put up there? a picture of the chicken and the egg, right? Was it the biology that affected sexual orientation or was it the sexual orientation that affected the biology? Are you with me on this? We know that individuals who are blind As they learn Braille, that part of their brain begins to, that part of their brain associated with tactile touch begins to expand. So we recognize that behavior can affect the brain, and it might, even if that was the case, might be a chicken or an egg question. This is why most scientists, virtually all scientists as far as I know, have set aside this one, even though it had lots of prominence during the 1990s. Well, the second one you might have heard of is one that is done by Bailey and Pollard and they studied homosexuals and they found that homosexuals that had a twin, if they had an identical twin it was three times more likely that the identical twin would be gay. If the first one was gay, the second one would be gay compared to the rest of the population. Now what do we have in common with identical twins? They're genetically identical, right? So if you saw that one one twin was gay and it was an identical twin, they're three times more likely than people in the general population, compared to like fraternal twins or other kinds of individuals. You see the argument? I might point out that both Simon LeVay and Bailey and Pollard both studies, they were done by prominent homosexuals. So you have to recognize there could be the potential for bias there. But the biggest problem was simply this. Okay, they found that if one was gay, one was homosexual, about half of the time, what about the other 50%? In other words, you had just as many exceptions as you had rules. Now identical twins not only have biology in common, what else do they have in common? The environment, right? Is it possible that the environment could explain some of that? Of course that it could. Now this one was set aside very quickly when people found out that this was not a representative sample of twins in society. Turns out that they were advertising in gay magazines. If you're gay and you have a gay twin, contact us. It's a terrible study, but nevertheless. Now there's some other studies, in my book I go into them in more detail, I haven't been totally fair because we haven't had the time, but I think you can see that the best studies used almost all the time to justify that people are born homosexual, we haven't found one yet. These are the two best. If you're in a debate, these are the ones that surface. What about the second one? Once gay, always gay. Well, in the interest of time, I just thought I'd post a couple of books just to say there are a lot of books. A lot of examples, a lot of stories, a lot of testimonies that demonstrate indeed people can, if they so desire and are willing to work at it, leave the homosexual lifestyle. This book by Bob Davies, Coming Out of Homosexuality. Joe Dallas, the former president of Exodus International, Desires in Conflict. These uh, give very detailed stories and studies of individuals who have at one time been in the homosexual lifestyle and have left it and in many cases got married and had a heterosexual lifestyle. But you might say, well, yeah, but you know, these are people that are more anecdotal. Okay, well, the most significant study that's ever come out is a book called x Gays, that one on the right there by Jones and Yarhouse, it is what is called a longitudinal study of religiously mediated change. The book is so thick you can use it as a doorstop, and it's really one of the most definitive books that document, again, it is difficult, I would certainly admit, for individuals to lead that lifestyle. But there are successes documented by scientists. You have, as Pat has put in here, a very good article by one of our staff members, Sue Bolin, who's probably counseled more lesbians than anyone else. And in the back here, she has this great illustration. Sometimes you have this very last argument about the XX gays, some people that left the homosexual lifestyle and then re-entered it. So they're called XX gays. Oh, well, then that means, of course, then that we really can't leave the lifestyle. I love the example she uses. Well, there are people that are in Alcoholics Anonymous who stop drinking and then they fall off the wagon, right? We know people that have been through drug treatment, but not everybody leaves the drug culture. She has one down, way down workshop. Some people didn't lose weight. Does that mean people can't lose weight? You see the point? We apply a different standard here. And the point I really want to make is is that we don't have to be afraid of these kinds of arguments. If anything, we find ourselves, in a sense, needing to use good argument and argumentation to argue to our biblical conclusions. I don't hide my biblical conclusions, but I don't start with biblical presuppositions either. Because the audiences that I speak to most of the time, especially in university campuses, aren't going to start off saying, oh yeah, I believe the Bible, so whatever the Bible says, I believe but I show them the logical conclusions of their views. And so if nothing else, I hope that just in the short time I've had here, I've given you a way to maybe talk to your friends, your neighbors, and coworkers. And believe me, if you have friends or neighbors, family members that are homosexuals, I'm a fellow traveler. My wife would be glad to share with you that the boy she dated all through high school died of AIDS. So when I talk about homosexuality, I understand the pain, I understand the rejection of a biblical point of view, but I also recognize that we need to be able to stand for truth, and I'm hoping to have given you a little more encouragement to see that we do have good arguments, and that's what God has called us to do, to be faithful and ultimately to be the salt of the earth and the light of
0: the world. Well, we are just out of time today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucarin with Kirby Anderson on Same-Sex Marriage. Dr. Zucarin has much more on our website, EvidenceandAnswers.org. You'll find more on Same-Sex Marriage and Homosexuality and resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And it really is a blessing when you offer a financial gift to Evidence and Answers to help keep us on the air and online giving an intelligent presentation of the claims of Christ and a biblical evaluation on a multitude of hot topics. Just click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. And please do so today. It would mean so much to us to hear from you. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers